Ooh, I like that song. Just let that go for a little while. Nah, it's okay. We should get on with service. But archive that. I like that one. I like that one. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad to see you guys out there online, wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching this. Um, welcome. Um, we have a message that I am I'm excited. I, I told you guys I was going to quit worrying about using the word excited a lot because I'm excited. Two exclamation points about this message today. Um, if you're new, you haven't been with us for a while, um, we use a lot of scripture. You saw Pastor Tom use some scripture during the, during the worship. There's going to be a lot during this message too. I believe that the word of God speaks for itself and our job is just to, to put it together and interpret it in a way that makes sense and makes it clear. If you need a Bible, we have gift Bibles in the basket in the back there. You can either take a gift Bible or the other ones, you'll, you'll tell the difference. The paper ones are just loners. If you just need something for today, you forgot yours, uh, feel free to grab those. But um, the reason that I'm excited about this message today is because we get to use words like sin and destruction and howling and weeping and wailing and judgment I know, right? (laughs) But let me ask you a question. What's your goal for being here at church today? Is it to hear something warm and fuzzy and make you feel good and just go out and go, hey, everything's great, we're doing good. Everything's fantastic because the pastor said that we're all blessed and go with God. Or are you here to grow? Are you here to be challenged? Because rarely, it can happen, but rarely do people grow without a challenge. And I think James today has a message for us that's going to be a little bit challenging. I am going to use all those words that I just mentioned. But I hope that you see it not as like, oh, that was a downer of a message. That was a challenging message. And if it challenges you specifically, like maybe just kind of pricks your heart in a certain way, I want you to look at that. However, whatever it was that pricked your heart in a certain way, look at that carefully and a little bit more closely and see why. Is it something in our lives that we need to maybe purge out that doesn't belong there? Is it an attitude that we've had that maybe we didn't even realize that we had? that we need to look at a little bit more closely because our goal should be to slowly grow together more into the image of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's what we're called to do. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. So if any of these things are things that maybe poke at you a little bit, look at that as that's an opportunity to grow. That's why I'm excited because some of these things speak to me. And I can say, I, I didn't realize that was there, but I see that it is, and it's something I struggle with. I want to get that out of my life as best I can, purge that out of there so that I can then live the life I was intended to. That's what excites me. Warm and fuzzy messages are great. We have, we have donuts and coffee downstairs if anybody needs a warm and fuzzy after the service. Go down and do that. <coughs> And when it's appropriate, they'll be warm and fuzzy. It's not all, it's not all 
uh, harsh and challenging. But this one here, James, I tell you, if you haven't been here for any of this service, uh, of this series in James, um, James is so practical. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he is, he started out his life, started out most of his, his adulthood, or at least the beginning part of it, not believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He was a devout Jew, and how many people here, if your half-brother all of a sudden said, I'm the Messiah, believe in me, you'd go like, oh, I see it, yeah. No, <laughs> you're like, really? I remember you eating paste in elementary school, right? <laughs> so he struggled with it like any of us would, but he had that time, he had that moment. Maybe it was watching Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it was witnessing some of the miracles. We don't know exactly when it happened, but man, when it happened, and he said, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. When it happened, it happened to him in a big way. But being just a practical kind of person that James is, he's not all concerned with all the theology and all of the, the um, lineage and heritage and all these sorts of things. Um, he's like, Here's how to live a life, given what we have right now to work with, here's how to live a life that follows the teachings of Jesus. So super practical. So this is where we are. So if you remember, now it's been a while. We had, we had Easter and we had all these kind of interruptions. Last week we talked about this idea that asserting your independence, this spirit of independence, which... In general, the word, the world, exalts the idea of being independent. We want to teach our kids to be independent. We want to be independent. But we have to be very careful there because independence can also be a spirit. A spirit that leads you away from dependence on Christ in your life to a spirit of independence where we think, I'm just going to do me. How many times do we say, you just do you? That's that idea of allowing a spirit of independence to lead you astray from what Christ has for you. It's the, it's the very opposite of dependence, and it's the opposite of walking in humility, which is what we're very often called to do. From last week, James 4.17, he said, So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. So partnering with a spirit of independence is, by its very definition, sin. It's the idea that we can do anything, anything that is good and pure and pleasing, anything good without God. And in that case, it was making plans. Like You plan that you're going to go do this and that and make money here and do this and this kind of business, but have you checked in with God to see if that's what he wants for you? So now, that was last week, now we're going to look at the results or the pitfalls maybe of pursuing a comfortable life without putting God front and center. So where we are right now, we're finishing up, or, or we're starting that is, in chapter 5. So we're in James 5, we're only going to do the first six verses, James 5, 1 through 6. So if you have your phone app or your Bible app or your, your paper Bible, it's a very short section. What I want to do, though, is address 
who James is talking to. He's talking to, obviously it's scripture, so it's meant for all of us in all times and places to take something away, to take something to heart. But he is specifically writing this letter to a group of of Jews who have professed faith in Christ, but he suspects, and I'll let you be the judge, he suspects that they're professing faith in Christ just so that they can be kind of wolves among sheep and actually go in and make a profit off of all these other Jews who have become followers of Christ. I'll let you decide. But let's pray. I want to pray, since this is kind of a potentially a difficult or challenging message, I want to pray before we even start that the Holy Spirit would poke at you, show you what you need to see, kind of wake us up out of our just like staring at the window at the sun and the snow and all that, and really let the Holy Spirit minister to your heart. So would you just join me in that? Father, we just lift this message up to you, and I just pray that your word would go forth and it would have the effect that you intend. It would prick hearts that needed to be pricked. It would remind us where we needed to be reminded. It would show us. It would reveal something that maybe we didn't see. Maybe it would give us encouragement that something we have been struggling with is no longer an issue. Lord, however you intend, I know that your word is intended for each one of us, and your spirit will speak to us individually, and that's what I pray for now that we would all take away from this message what you want. So any of my words that, that do not line up with what you want for your people here today, God, I just pray that they fall to the side and they are forgotten, but that your words and your purpose are amplified in our hearts. Father, I love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the first six verses. I'm just going to read it in its entirety. So given... Given the prayer that we just did, I want you to listen to this and let the Holy Spirit just kind of speak to you as I read this through. Then we'll dig into it a little bit. James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich people, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance. All right. Fun, huh? Now just think about this. Is there anything about what I just read that's already kind of poking at your heart? Just think about that as we go through the rest of the message. Now you don't, he's obviously talking about rich people, but you don't have to be rich by U.S. standards to have this apply to you. Don't be tempted to think this only applies to that one rich guy you know. We all have parts of this that, 
that should speak to us. And remember also, it's not money that's the problem. Don't be tempted to think that this is a message all about, really, you should all just be living a life of poverty. It's not that at all. It's just the love of money, especially at the expense of others. That's the problem here. The Bible's all about talking about how God wants to bless you with abundance. God wants to bless you with plenty, and that is absolutely true. Proverbs 10.22, for example, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So the blessing of the Lord makes you rich, and he's not going to add sorrow to it just, just so there's a balance. He wants to bless you. Later on, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance Listen to why, though, for every good deed. So that, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Note the abundance here is for a specific reason. It's not just so that you can have extra zeros in your bank account, so that you can have extra, an extra, extra big screen TV, or, or yeah, I won't go down that road. But Timothy taught us what does Timothy say about the love of money? Anybody know? It's the root of all sorts of evil. Especially, he teaches that the pursuit of it has caused so many people to stray from the faith, stray from following God. So money and wealth can be a wonderful tool, can be a wonderful blessing, or it can be a terrible curse and a dangerous tool. Anybody ever known somebody who comes into a sudden, uh, sudden windfall and is all of a sudden finding themselves rich without the moral character to deal with it? Money itself can be a curse. So let's take a little closer look at what James has to say on this. Let's go into verse 1, James 5, 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. I want to stop there. The word rich just simply means rich, okay? In any language, it translates the same. But weeping and howling, we see all throughout Scripture, especially New Testament Scripture, that weeping and howling can mean different things. And I don't want you to be confused about it here. Weeping and howling, here's your Greek lessons for today. The word weep translates in Greek, uh, it's a verb and it's kaleo. And kaleo means expressing, expressing uncontainable, audible grief. Uncontainable, audible grief. And then that next word, howling, it's a different word. Howl is a Greek, Greek word, ololazo. Try and say that, ololazo. And it's, the definition is a cry or shriek expressing feelings too intense for words. Does that sound like fun? Not in any, but, but let's contrast that really quick. The point that I'm making, it's different than like, let's say Luke, for example, uses when Jesus is on the Via Dolorosa. He's walking. He's been condemned. He's carrying his cross, and he's walking to 
Golgotha. And scripture tells us in Luke, Luke 23, 27, following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and grieving for him. Depending on your translation, it might say weeping and wailing. That's different. It's entirely different words. Those words, those are professional mourners. Okay, in Jesus' case, they're paid, and this is part of Hebrew culture, they are paid to show up at a funeral, at a procession, anything like that, and weep and wail for show, specifically, as a, as a sign of respect. That's not what James is talking about here. He's not saying you're going you're gonna to weep and wail for show. He's saying this is going to hurt you to your core. This is going to damage you inside. That's the kind of weeping and wailing he's talking about there. So I just want to set the tone there. That's what he's talking about. And they're not some theoretical, maybe this could happen or maybe that, or I'll let you decide what these miseries that might come upon you are. He's talking about specifics here. Now, some theologians, for those of you who like to geek out on this kind of stuff, some, Kayla, yeah, your head pops up. Some theologians will argue that he's talking about the coming destruction of Rome. Okay, and there may be an element of that, but that would require him to be operating in the prophetic, which he's not claiming to do right now. Not that he can't, not that he doesn't, but he's not really claiming to do that right now. What he's doing is telling these, these people who started out as Jews, they're Jews to their core, who have now come to profess Jesus, at least on, on the surface they have. He's reminding them, of what scripture says. Now when I say scripture for somebody like that, in the time of Jesus, what was scripture? It was the Old Testament. That's what they had then. So he's talking about what Isaiah prophesied, about the coming day of judgment. Isaiah 13, six says, wail for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And there's more. I'm not going to go into that now. But he's reminding them of those things. Like, remember what you've been taught since you were born, that this was coming. What you're doing right now is going to lead you down that road. He's very much challenging them. They're living, this group of people he's addressing to, are living as if there's not going to be a judgment day and no eternity to be concerned about. This is where it applies to all of us. In all situations, are you living your life as if there's no eternity? As you, are you living your life as if there's not going to be a judgment? It applies to all of us. But this group, they're living only for today, just trying to make the most out of what they can at that moment. James 5, verses 2 and 3, I'll read this to you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, there's a little bit of prophetic from James because this probably hasn't happened yet, but he's saying this is happening to you now. Now, remember, in that time, how much food you had stored up and how much clothing you had, how many different robes and colors of robes and all these things that you had was a very much a sign of affluence. It was a sign of wealth. So when he's poking at their clothing, 
their gold and silver, their clothing and all these things. He's saying your trappings of wealth are not going to last. And it's in the last days and you're storing up all this stuff. You're taking precious time in the last days, storing up all these things that aren't going to last. Jesus taught that very same idea at the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we don't know for sure whether James was at the Sermon on the Mount watching that teaching, but a lot of what he talks about echoes those thoughts. Jesus taught this, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. We've seen it. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus taught that. Now, there's been a lot of debate on what treasures in heaven is. I've always thought, and I've always taught, it's definitely not gold. Streets are paved with gold. It's not jewels. What are you going to do with jewels? I think what it is, treasures in heaven. What does God consider treasure? What does God treasure more than anything? You people. When it says store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, I believe when we get there, we're going to look around and we're going to see the lives that we have touched. That's going to be our treasure. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry about, don't worry about gold or extra robes or any of these sorts of things. Worry about storing up treasure in heaven, which is going to be people whose lives you have touched for the better. Now, even those who may not have heard Jesus teach this. Now, remember, they're, they're, we're talking to a group of, of Jews by birth raised in the Hebrew culture, and some of these may not even be believers in Christ at all, but they would certainly be familiar with what Job taught. How many here were with us on our Job series all the way back? A few people. That was fun, huh? But even if they didn't, believe in Christ or hadn't heard Jesus' teaching on this, they would have heard this from Job. Job 27, 13 through 17. Listen to what Job says. This is the portion of a wicked person from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword, and his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. His survivors will be buried because of the plague, and their widows will not be able to weep. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the righteous person will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Does that sound like a reason for James to say, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you? They would have been very familiar with that, and I think that's what James is pointing at there. He doesn't pull any punches pointing out their sin, which, again... I love this. He goes right to the heart. Now, they may have heard all this stuff and said, okay, okay, James, you're telling me I need to live a better life. Okay, pastor, you're saying I need to think more of others and less about myself. Okay. He gets right to it here. There is no ambiguity what he's talking about. James 5, 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. 
That takes, I'm going to tell mom to a whole nother level. God has heard of the things you're doing. Your translation, by the way, if you have, if you have the KJV um, or some versions even of the NASB, that Lord of Armies can translate either as Lord of Hosts or sometimes confusing can say Lord of Sabaoth. Anybody's translation say that? Okay. It's the same thing. I like to point out those things that can be just confusing to us. Like, what does this mean? But that word actually just translates, the, the definition is an innumerable throng or a limitless company means armies or, or Lord of hosts, okay? It, it's the same word. King James likes to sound very formal. You can sound really smart if you use that word. Unfortunately, though, what these guys are doing is nothing new. And it's been nothing new since the very beginning. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, some Old Testament, some, some law from way back addresses these things really, really specifically. Let me share just two with you. Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired worker are not to remain with you all night until morning. Seems like something you shouldn't have to tell people, right? Deuteronomy 24, 14, 15, you shall not exploit a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your strangers who are in your land or in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he does not cry out against you to the Lord and become a sin in you. So why is that such a problem? I mean, obviously, it's something that's been going on. If you have a laborer who comes in, say, for example, into your, maybe you hire a guy down at, at Home Depot to come and help build your shed. Maybe you've got a guy who comes and does your lawn work for you. This situation has been going on forever. But if you mistreat that person, if you withhold their pay overnight, now who's more desperate for that $20 that they're going to get for mowing your lawn? You or the person who does it? Who needs that? And if they know that you're a follower of Christ and you treat them unfairly, what does that do to your witness for Christ? What they're going to say is, yeah, Christians are just like everybody else. Believers in God, even like these guys who may or may not even know Jesus, they're called to glorify him in everything they do. And does being cheap or stingy or paying your bills late, any of that sort of thing, does that glorify God? That's what James is talking about here. It's all about our witness. James 5.5, 5, the last, second to last verse in this section. You have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Word slaughter and things is so fun. But think about this metaphor. Why would a sheep destined for slaughter continue to fatten itself? Why would it worry about that? If you've ever been around a, a cattle ranch or seen the process going into a slaughterhouse, they will continue to eat 
right up as they're walking down the chute into the slaughterhouse, they will continue to eat because they don't know any better. Their life is all about just, I just need to eat more and more. I need to get more and more. I need to fatten myself, fatten myself, fatten myself. They have no concept of the day that's approaching for them. And James is saying, why, why are you spending so much of your lives storing up excess when the day is coming? This is what James is trying to teach us here. Psalm 49, 14 says, like sheep, they're led to the grave where death will be their shepherd. In the morning, the godly will rule over them. Their bodies will rot in the grave far from their grand estates. It's not a new problem. It wasn't new in the time of James, and it's not a new thing now. James 5, 6, the last of the scriptures in this section. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance. In other words, they are taking advantage of those who can't possibly even put up a fight. It's not a battle at all. It's a complete takeover. That word condemned, by the way, again, here's another, here's another Greek for you. You have condemned. <coughs> it's katadikadzo in the Greek, condemned. It's a legal term. This gives us, this is one of those situations where the translation gives us a real clue about what's really happening here. Katadikadzo is a legal term used in court, okay? And it means to... to pass sentence upon. What he's specifically saying here is that these guys, if you want to call them marginal, maybe marginal believers, we'll give them the, the benefit of the doubt, but they're certainly not acting like it, even if they are. But they're using the court system to take houses and land, and more probably, from poor people who can't defend themselves. This is exactly what's happening here. Anybody here, um, either a, a student of history or maybe you're old enough to remember the idea of a company store? Anybody here? I see some heads nodding. Anybody here? What's that famous song? You move 16 tons and what do you get, right? Okay. Some of you are going like, what is, what is he talking about? Believe me, it's super cool if you only knew. But it's very similar to that. Back in the 1900s, um, it really kind of started in late 1800s with coal mines. Coal mines in Virginia and places like that, uh, Kentucky, only the poorest people would work in coal mines because it was dangerous work. It was dirty. It was hard. It was, it was dangerous. Um, a lot of people wouldn't even survive it. And they set up these ideas of a company store. And what would happen if you lived out in rural Kentucky or, or these places right there, you couldn't go to Walmart and get everything you need. So the company that you worked for, the company that owned the coal mine, would set up a store, kind of a, what would equate to a modern-day Walmart. They were never near that big. But they would pay you in what's called, what's it called? Anybody know? Scrip. They would pay you in what's called scrip. And scrip is money that's only good at the company store. Here's a picture. We have a picture of what a company store looked like. That's an actual company store. I think that was Long Branch, West Virginia. Okay, 1912. So Long Branch Coal Company, they would pay you in scrip. Now, the next slide 
is a picture of, that's just one random, Cornette Lewis Coal Company Incorporated, Llewellyn, Kentucky. They would pay you in that, and it was only good at their store. The problem is the pay never was enough to cover everything that you needed. So what they would do is very gladly offer you store credit. We'll just put this on your account. Credit, 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 credit. And before you know it, your income, which you can only spend back at their store, no longer keeps pace with how much you owe them. Now they own you. They own you. And you end up working the rest of your life until the day you die, essentially for free, to pay off your debt at the company store. Technically legal, but very morally wrong, especially in the eyes of God. This is what James is talking about here. This was the dynamic that was going on back in those days. Now, I know probably none of you have a company store or a coal mine, but the concept applies. Are there people in our lives Usually the less fortunate, usually those who can't put up much of a fight, who maybe we're taking advantage of. Maybe it's an employee that we're treating unfairly just because we can. So, what's Scripture teaching us in this section? It seems like James is just doubling down on his earlier rant and rail against rich people. That's not it. That is not it. He's talking about the dangers of a life of self-indulgence, a life of excess, and a life of, of a lack of compassion for others. Self-indulgence, excess, lack of compassion for others. Remember that the the whole underlying theme. I search scripture. I'm trying to like, okay, what section in James kind of really, really just sums up the entire book of James? And it's this one. I'll read it to you. This is back from chapter 2. James 2, 14 through 17. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So these people that he's talking to have developed an infatuation, an obsession maybe, with business and wealth that in their eyes meant security. In their eyes... They were pursuing wealth at any cost without any regard for an eternal perspective. Now, if we contrast that mindset with what Jesus teaches about self-denial, Matthew 16, 24 to 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? Question for you guys. What does it mean when Jesus says deny yourself 
and take up your cross. What does that mean? I'm not expecting a whole church full of people to raise their hands, but think about that where you are. If you had something in your life where Jesus says, you need to deny yourself. Is there something in your life that you know right now that you're putting too much emphasis on, you're spending too much time on, that you need to deny yourself? Take up your cross. What's it mean to take up your cross? I think it's different for all of us. But I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, summed it up really well. This is going to be the last scripture I'm going to read to you, but I want you to think about what Paul says about this very topic that we're talking about here. What's it mean to deny yourself and take up the cross? What does that mean? Paul says it here, Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, it's a list, so if you're writing, write fast. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Probably in that list somewhere, each one of us is getting a little poke. Verse 22, here's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a contrast, a life in the flesh, a life pursuing the things of the flesh, or a life pursuing the things of the Spirit. The last thing I want to say before we pray I'm going to read it because I don't want to misstate it. We're not called as followers of Christ to live a bland and mundane life, devoid of any kind of passion or desire or comfort. That is not what he's saying here. But we are called to live a life that demonstrates the fruits of the Spirit in us in such a way that it is attractive and magnetic to those who need to know Christ in a way that gives glory to God. And we do that in order to make him known. So is the way that you're living your life, if someone were going to job shadow you, Gabe did a, did a job shadow last week where people from Warren Tech that were in the hospitality industry came over and followed her around to kind of see how, this, how the chapel business side of it works. If you had... Uh, say someone who is interning as a potential Christian. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I want to follow you around, see how a Christian lives their life. I hear some giggling, some little uncomfortable giggling. I'm going to leave it right there. Father God, <laughs> Father God, we thank you, Lord, that your, that your word does not return void. Your word does not condemn. 
but your word does have power to convict. And so, Lord, I pray that anyone here, myself included, God, that heard your words today and is feeling a conviction to get rid of some things in their life, to live a life that is more glorifying to you, to live a life that would draw others to you, Lord, I pray that that conviction would sink in deep and it would be life-changing. We want our lives changed. We want to be more like you. We want to be worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. So, Father, continue to work in our hearts, not once we leave this seat, you know, leave this building that it goes away, but continue to work in our hearts. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to step into communion right now. And what better way, what better way to say yes and agree with the teachings of Christ than to take communion together? <clears throat> so if you're new here and you haven't taken communion with us before, the way we do it, all you have to do is profess that Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he's, he is the Lord of your life, and then you're invited to take communion with us. We have two stations up front, here and here. And if you guys could serve, um, we serve wine up here and bread and crackers, and we just dip it into the wine and take it that way. In the back, if you want to serve yourself, we have grape juice in the back for non-alcoholic or anything like that. That's in the back, and you can serve yourself. But take all the time you need. While the worship team sings, listen to the words, let the Spirit convict you. And when we take communion, let's just do it saying, yes. I say yes to who you're calling me to be. Amen? Thank you, guys.